who is this Jesus? I think it's a question that many, many men and women have faced over the years. I think it's a question that we face even as we look at the text today. Who is Jesus? In America, Jesus isn't necessarily God. In 2020, there was a survey produced and in that survey, about 52% of people surveyed said that Jesus was a great moral example and a great teacher, even maybe a great healer, but he was not God. And then the survey went a little deeper and actually people who proclaimed themselves to be evangelical Christians were surveyed with that same question, who is Jesus? And 30% of those surveyed among evangelical Christians said that Jesus was a great moral teacher, maybe even a healer, but was not God. I think a lot of us actually have an incomplete picture of who Jesus is. I think a lot of us look to Jesus and say, well, he was a great teacher, he was a great example, he was a great healer. But we often have an incomplete picture of his authority, of who he is and what that means to us. And so our relationship with him, our engagement with him is oftentimes incomplete. For if he's just a teacher, you go to him when you need wisdom. And when you don't need wisdom, you don't go to him. If he's just a healer, you go to him when you need fixed. And when you don't need fixed, you don't go to him. I wonder if your interaction with Jesus mirrors either of those two mentalities. Jesus is certainly a teacher. I don't want to dismiss that. We need his words. His words are the words of life. And he certainly is a miracle worker. His miracles were given to us to understand his ultimate authority, his dominion, and his purpose. But sadly for us, for many of us, this is where our understanding of Jesus begins and ends. Incomplete. Our text today in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Mark is answering the question of Jesus. Who is this man? He's clarifying who Jesus is as he begins to work through this chapter and through these first couple of chapters with the intent that we would have a full understanding of his identity and then we would surrender to the full authority that Jesus Christ has. And so in Mark chapter 2, Mark recalls this particular story that I imagine is familiar to us in this room today and is revealing the complete authority of Jesus. And so as we engage this text together, since we don't have the screens, you're going to have to take vigorous notes. And I'm going to ask you about them as you leave today. <laughs> so get out that pen, paper, steal it from your neighbor. As we engage this text today, there are three surprises that stand out to us. So that's going to be the basic outline of our sermon today. Three surprises that we see in this story that help guide us to a deeper, fuller, more complete understanding of who Jesus is and how his complete authority reveals our need as humans. So those three surprises are, first, the desperate actions of the paralytic's friends. The desperate actions of the paralytic's friends. Secondly, Jesus forgives the paralytic who came to him for healing. Jesus forgives the paralytic who came to him for healing. And the third surprise is Jesus heals the paralytic 
to answer the question of forgiveness. Three surprises. We'll start with the first one, the desperate actions of the paralytic's friends. You'll see this in verses four through one of our text, or one through four of our text. Just as a bit of a background, Jesus has returned from his tour throughout the region there in Galilee, and he's returned to Capernaum. And because of all that had transpired in chapter one of Mark, you can go back and look there, you'll see that he's gained quite a following. He taught as one with great authority. He healed. He released people from demon possession. And so because of his preaching and his healing, it was impossible for Christ to enter into any area quietly. When he came in to a town, word got out. And that's what happened here. So much so that the crowds actually overflowed the house. And the details that are given here in verses 1 through 4 are helpful in that. It helps us see that the crowd filled it to the point where it was actually overflowing outside of the door. And what was Christ doing as he was there? Verse 2, he was preaching the word to them. Yes, Jesus was a preacher. And what was he preaching? Well, Mark 1.15 tells us what he preached as he walked and as he taught. He preached that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And so Mark then records that as Jesus is teaching to a full house, overflowing house, these four friends, desperate friends, carried the man, the paralytic man, to where he could not go on his own. Now I know that that's an obvious statement. It's an obvious observation, but many times we kind of read this and move past the weight of this scenario. For in this action of these four friends, think about what that meant for them. These four friends, here Jesus is in town. They have a friend who could use an interaction with a healer. Well, we've got to get him there. So someone had the bright idea. Well, let's, let's pick him up and carry him. Let's get him on a, a gurney and take him. And so through these streets, through the carrying them on a crude stretcher, the dead man's, or the man's dead weight helping, not helping them move at all, only their determination to get this man to the place where he needed to be in front of the man he needed to see drove them. Desperate actions, carrying this man where he could not go himself. And they get to the house. I don't know how long they had to walk. But carrying a, a person is a hard thing to do. And so I imagine they get there and they're walking up to the house and they're so excited to finally get there to get this man in front of Jesus and there's no way for them to actually get into the house. Crowds present a formidable obstacle from time to time, don't they? If you've ever been to Disney, the Canfield Fair, crowds get in the, get in the way, don't they? And often when we face a crowd, we face a decision that goes with it. When you come up and you see a long line, ultimately, what is your decision? Do I stay or do I go? Just a few weeks ago, we saw that here. Amazingly, the line for the trunk or treat went out under Herbert all the way down the road. And I was amazed at people's affection for candy. That they're willing to stand in this line. They faced the decision. Do we stay or do we go? And they stayed. Here, we see this with these four friends. The men face the choice. Do we stay or go? Do we wait 
do we press through it or do we just leave and come back later? Maybe Jesus will be here later. Here's the thing. They were desperate for their friend's healing to the point where there was no later. It was now. They were desperate. And so these four men came up with a plan. And that plan revealed that these four men probably were middle schoolers because of what they did next. The plan? Well, we can't get in, so let's go up to the roof. And the solution is stunning, isn't it? Because the roof could be replaced. But the opportunity to have an audience with Jesus could not be missed. And so the solution, these men take their paralytic friend, take him up the stairs on the side of the house to the roof. Now the roofs typically in those times were flat. And they served often as like an outside porch for the people during the cool evenings. They would go and sit on the porch or on the roof. So the roof was built in such a way that you could walk on it. It sustained weight. Typically, it would be sticks laid across uh, cross beams covered with a woven thatch. And then on top of that thatch, they would put clay and grass. Some of these roofs even had grass growing on them to help with water. It could be 18 inches to two feet thick. And so these men go to the roof and they look at this roof and they say, not a problem. We'll just cut right through this. And so put yourself inside the house at this moment. You're inside the house with Jesus hearing him teach about repentance and the kingdom of God coming. And suddenly you begin to hear things above you. And we think this not having the screens are distracting today. Imagine if suddenly the roof starts caving in on us. And we see things falling from above and we hear voices above us and we hear shovel sounds up on the roof and we hear pickaxes and we see suddenly light begin to shine through above us and we look up and we see four guys looking down. And then we see them begin to lower down a stretcher with a guy on the stretcher. This is a Sunday that you will never forget. You would not soon forget this day. And the four brothers... Lower this man down, hand by hand, to the point where he is on the ground in front of Jesus. It's noted that the paralytic doesn't say anything. We never hear from him in this. And I think that's intentional, because I don't think this guy knew what to say. I think his four friends was a, created a stunning event, and all in that room were surprised but these four desperate friends relay a point that I want us to start off our time with today and that is this true healing can only be found in Jesus they were driven by that reality we have a friend who is sick we need to get him to Jesus there is no obstacle that could stop us from getting him there I wonder if we have that same determination I wonder are there obstacles that are keeping you and I from pursuing Christ, from dwelling in his presence? And so here's the setting. This man laying on the floor in front of Jesus, four men looking down to see what's going to happen, and a paralyzed man just laying there looking at Jesus, the crowd looking at Jesus, looking at the paralyzed man, looking up at the roof, the owner of the house saying, well, who's going to fix that? And you can feel the tension building. What's Jesus going to do? This guy interrupted his teaching. 
And so maybe Jesus walks forward to the paralytic and sees him and looks at him. And the crowd, remember, they're there because they've heard that Jesus is a healer. They've heard that he teaches with authority. And so they know what's going to happen next, just like all of us would anticipate what's going to happen next here. They know that he's going to look at this man and do something to this man. And we, we want to see this. We don't want to miss it. And so we kind of lean forward to see a bit. And Jesus approaches this man. And we're all excited because it's about to happen. You see him take a breath to say something. And he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's surprise number two. Jesus forgives a man who came to him for healing. The words the paralytic heard from Jesus were probably not the words that he thought he needed to hear from Jesus. If he were from Canfield, Ohio, the paralytic probably would have said at this point, uh, hold on, that's great, thank you. But that's not what I'm here for. Obviously, I have a bigger issue. And the majority of us in this room today and in that room then probably would have said, yeah, I mean, this guy needs to walk. He's, he, he's paralyzed. Help this guy out. But the shocking act of speaking to the man with words of forgiveness, in that act, Jesus is revealing the vital truth for the crowd then and the vital truth for us now as we hear and read this story to consider. And here are some of those vital truths. Notice the very first word he says to this man. He calls him what? Son. Strange biblical language here. In the Bible then, in biblical times then, as is now, you don't oftentimes call someone son who is not literally your son. It's not a common form of address then. But in this term of address, the very first word that Jesus says to this man, Jesus is revealing the tremendous personal care for the soul of this paralytic man. And he's revealing that the forgiveness he's giving him is exactly what this man needs more than anything else. Jesus is in essence looking at this paralyzed man and saying to him this, you might not understand this moment what I'm about to do, but I'm doing it because it's best for you. I could heal your legs, but your satisfaction in that healing will be short-lived. But I'm about to give you the answer to your soul. And what Jesus is clarifying for this man and for all of those in attendance and for us today is this. Hear this. No material prosperity, no physical condition, nothing is more important than having a right relationship with God. Nothing. And this is a common theme that Christ returns to time and time and time again as he teaches. In Mark chapter 8, just down the road from Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 8, verse 35 through 36, Christ looks at his followers, those that are following him, and clarifies this point once again. And he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul. What does it profit a man to have full use of his legs, but his soul not be redeemed? 
Why does Christ keep speaking this way throughout the entirety of his earthly ministry? He speaks about the kingdom and the need to give up all to follow him. Why does he keep speaking this way? Because we consistently think the answer to our issues, our problems, our longings can be solved by the temporary and short-lived pursuits this world affords us. We attempt to solve the eternal longings of our heart with the temporary things of this world. But the gracious invasion of Jesus Christ into the life of this paralytic reveals the truth of the matter that nothing is more important than having a right relationship with God. And all the longings that are unmet in our hearts by the things of this world, they all point to, clarify, and reveal that this world is not meant to satisfy. Only the healing relationship of Jesus Christ satisfies that. And so Jesus graciously engages this broken man by calling him son so that he might indeed know that he has his best interest in mind. And he reveals that the main problem in our lives isn't our physical suffering, it's our sin. It isn't as if the paralytic was there because of his sin. He wasn't caught in some shameful act. He wasn't brought there because he was defrauding the community through a fake GoFundMe account or anything like that. He wasn't there because he thought he had sin to deal with. But in addressing the paralytic's sin, Jesus gives us an object lesson that we should all sit on the edge of our seat to receive. And that is this. Our ultimate need is not to be healed by God but to be made holy before God. I'm going to say that again. Our ultimate need is not to be healed by God, but to be made holy before God. We are born into a sinful nature. Living out the effect of that sin nature as you live for your own kingdom, and as you live for your own kingdom, you actually mock the reign of God and place yourself as objects of God's wrath. And so our main sickness isn't visible to the naked eye. It is experienced in our broken soul. And apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you and I are, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, told that we are dead in our sins and our flesh. Dead. Apart from Christ. And maybe you feel that in your heart and your soul. But in Christ, God made us alive together with him. Colossians finishes that thought out in Colossians 2.13. Apart from Christ, we are objects of God's wrath in Romans 9.22. We are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But in Christ, Romans 5.1 tells us, we have been justified by faith and have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, in Romans 2.8, we are told that we are subjects of the wrath and the fury of the holy God. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, because of Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Our ultimate need is not to be healed by God, but to be made holy before God. And so the question then moves in this story to the question that I pray is in your heart and mind right now. Well, how am I made holy? Can Jesus forgive my sins? And how do I know that he actually does forgive my sins? If you look at your text here in verse 7, 
This is the third surprise that Jesus heals to answer the question of forgiveness. And in verse 7, the scribes actually begin this interaction with Christ by asking a question in their hearts that he perceives. And the question is, who can forgive sins but God alone? It's actually a tremendously proper theological question. And it actually points to the whole reason this healing took place. Yes, only God can forgive sins because sins are only an offense to him, ultimately. Psalm 51, verses 3 through 4, tells us that the transgressions of our hearts are against God and against him alone so that he's actually blameless in his judgment against them. Only the offended party can forgive an, off an offense against him. A non-offended party cannot forgive a wrongdoing against another. We know this to be true. This is a principle we know even in our interactions with one another. And just for the sake of illustration, just imagine three brothers. And just for the sake of the point here, let's call these three brothers Nick, Chris, and Dan. And let's say that Dan went up to Nick and punched Nick in the nose while Chris watched. And then after Dan's colossal punch in Nick's nose, and after Nick was crying, <laughs> Chris walks up to Dan and says, Dan, it's okay. I forgive you for punching Nick. Well, we might say, that's really nice of you, Chris, to do that. But Nick's not going to think that's a great thing. Because the offense was against Nick. Only Nick can forgive Dan for that offense. And so the scribes were spot on theologically when they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so the picture then begins to clarify in front of them. And I hope it's clarifying in front of us today. Wait. This man forgave the paralytic his sins. And so in essence, this man, Jesus, is saying, yes, I am God. Yes, I can and will forgive the sins of men. I'm no mere teacher. I am no mere healer. I am God in human flesh in front of you. And my authority is not found only in what I teach or in how I heal, but my authority goes to the core of humanity as I alone can forgive. And so Christ hears their question, perceives their question, and asks them a question back. Verse 9. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? I think we would answer that question, that it's obviously much easier to actually say to someone, your sins are forgiven, than it would be to say to someone who is paralyzed, hey, stop being paralyzed. You should walk home. Because there's a physical observance to the paralytic's ability to walk. So as you say to someone, you should no longer be paralyzed, be healed, it's either proven true or established as a lie. But to forgive someone's sin, there is no such physical proof, right? It's just words. And so even as Christ asks this question to the scribes, there's actually a biblical underpinning that he is referencing that the Pharisees and the scribes would have caught. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22... It reads this, If a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord and it does not take place or come true, then that message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet is lying. Do not be afraid of him. 
And so Christ is putting all that he has said and all that he will say out in front of the religious leaders to determine who he is and the legitimacy of his message. And this is a crucial point in all in attendance. What's going to happen? Sometimes we read scripture and we kind of stand by it and we're like, oh, that's, I know what's going to happen next. Put yourself in this room. There's some tremendous tension being built here. What is going to happen? Verses 10 through 11. Here we go. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And guess what? He rose. Imagine that room. <laughs> Imagine what will happen next. The gasping, the eyes wide as the man began to stand. Imagine the process of this man standing who has not stood. Maybe Jesus had to help him up. Maybe he was a wee bit wobbly on his knees as he stood up. But this was not a process that would go unnoticed. Imagine being a person in that room with the knowledge of the Old Testament in your mind, the prophecies of the Messiah, and you think of Isaiah 35, 6 that says, He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame man will leap like a deer. And here it is. The proof is in the pudding, they say. The words of Christ which spoke forgiveness are proven true through the words of Christ to bring healing to a man who was so obviously broken. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, your Messiah, who heals a man physically and spiritually. Jesus Christ, who called this man son, for he was now a child of God because all offenses against him have been forgiven. And that forgiveness is fact because this man now stands. Do you feel the weight of this moment? The crowds did. They were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. What hadn't they seen? Someone forgive sins and prove it. Verse 10 is super important for us today. We often read this and we're like, oh, look at Christ speaking to the scribes. This is important. No, verse 10 is to us. But that you and I may know that the Son of Man forgives your sins, forgives me my sins, and that we have been given a sign of his power to forgive. And that sign that Christ gave us to prove his forgiveness begins with the same word that he gave to the paralytic, and that word is rise. The word Christ, that Christ used to tell the paralytic to rise is the same Greek word, igaire, that Mark uses to describe Jesus rising up in the resurrection. And there's a sense meant to be caught by the reader then and by the hearer now that Jesus is proving his forgiveness through the raising of that man up. He is also proving the words of his forgiveness for all those who call him Savior as he has risen up. And so the surprises of Mark 2 take us to this point about ourselves. First, you and I need healing. We are broken people. And that healing can only be found in Jesus. Second 
truth that is revealed is that our healing isn't just physical. Our greatest need is the healing of our sinful souls. And the third truth is this, that soul can only be healed by the forgiveness of one who has the authority to forgive. And his name is Jesus. Our greatest need in life is the forgiveness of our sins and only Jesus can forgive. Two questions to end. The first is a pressing one. Will today be your day when our gracious Savior's voice forgives you? Perhaps you've never yet surrendered to his gracious call to forgive you your sins and restore your relationship with the Almighty God to heal your soul. I pray that today would be that day. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, may you and I live in celebration as we can know with certainty that you are forgiven. The old has gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. Because he lives, because he rose, we now live and have life in him. Three surprises, three truths to our hearts. Let us reply to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and your word. I pray that your word would do the work of your, of your word in our hearts. That truth would be anchored, applied, conviction given, the boldness for response felt. And so I pray right now, Lord, in this room that if any of this contingent have not called you Savior, that this day would be the day of salvation. And I pray for those of us who have called you Savior and have lived our lives for you. I pray that we would celebrate the certainty of forgiveness that comes from you being our risen Savior. And so I pray that our mouths would be filled with praise, our lives would be filled with obedience, and this world would know that you are the God who redeems. Thank you so much, Father, for this time. We celebrate you even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.